When you're young, you're probably brash and impatient. I certainly was. I imagine that my mouth was the enemy of my neck a few times. What I found uh, that really was, was success for me was being rooted in data, rooted in facts. You can have lots of opinions and statistics can be you know, manipulated, but facts is really where I tended to have success. And I operate from data and I've used data throughout my career to help uh, reinforce points, to be able to move agendas. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Reinhard Mabry. For the last 17 years, Reinhard has been the president and CEO of AlphaPoint, one of the largest nonprofit employers of people with vision loss and providers of rehabilitation services in the United States. Prior to AlphaPoint, he spent five years as vice president of business development for Winston-Salem Industries for the Blind, and he spent seven years as the Director of Respect of Florida, the Florida Association of Rehabilitation Facilities. He has a Bachelor of Science in Political Science, as well as an MBA from Florida State University. You can learn more about Reinhardt and AlphaPoint at alphapoint.org, spelling AlphaPoint with an E at the end. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Reinhardt. Reinhard, uh, welcome to the Corporate Couch this morning. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for the invitation and opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah, we were, uh, well, I uh, first met you, I guess, virtually when you were on Randy Powell's Lessons in Leadership, and uh, then Steve Johns connected us to see if you would want to be a guest uh, on uh, this podcast, so I'm very honored. You have a great background and uh, I know you've done some great things throughout your career, especially the last 17 years at Alpha Point as the CEO, and uh, very excited to talk to you today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm with some, you, you mentioned some really tremendous people. Uh, I'm humbled to be around them and get to know them. And so uh, they're just talented professionals and colleagues. So really all, all just a wonderful group of folks. Uh, I, I find that just the the whole idea of having a, a round table, you know, nonprofits have a board of directors. Um, some business owners uh, have the benefit of having a board of, of people that, that help own the company and, and provide advice, but just having a sounding board, uh, you know, it's, it's lonely at the top. So it's good to have a sounding board. And these guys are, are really tremendous uh, colleagues. Yeah. 
yeah, on, uh, fortunately or unfortunately that, you know, when you're the, you know, the CEO or president of the company, you know, some people don't want to tell you, the, you know, what they think, right? <laughs> because of the title. So well, I, don't <laughs> but know. I know that group. We're getting in an age where uh, they tell you a lot more than you probably want to know. Sometimes they're very unfiltered, some, some particularly younger people. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. You want the unfiltered truth. So that's good. Uh, Reinhardt, I'd like to start with a fun question. Um, so even for people that know you uh, fairly well, what one thing about you would surprise them? Oh, gosh, I you know, I'm such a transparent person. I'm not sure if that. Uh, hmm. Well, I, I, I am uh, a lover of of dogs i've had dogs throughout my life and and uh uh i have a pomeranian that you know most dogs have always you know attached to my wife uh you know the primary caregiver this one follows me around uh as soon as i get in the house so i'm i love this little ball of fluff but he's very <laughs> cool i just <laughs> So Love yeah, yeah, that's probably something that not everybody knows is this yeah. little tiny little Pomeranian just following me all, all around the house. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I have we have a two and a half year old uh ultra mini golden doodle called Jeter for Derek Jeter. And I uh so he follows both of us around. He's a stage five clinger. So I uh, and I spent eleven plus years in the animal health industry, so very familiar with the uh, uh, having pets. So, uh, that's, that's great. Um, so, uh, what was, uh, fun for you as a, as a child growing up? Uh, what, what did you love to do? Uh, you know, so my, my dad, uh, was an outdoorsy guy. And, uh, when I was young, uh, I remember fishing with him and my grandfather, but, uh, what became really exciting and more of a passion for me was soccer was one, um, because I, I'm not the big guy in, in the room. So soccer was really a, an easier sport for me to not get killed. And then uh, golf. And I love golf. And as I've gotten older and be able to golf with my kids and that just uh, it's a it's a great way to commune. It's a great way to uh, socialize, have uh, some competitive edge. So, no, I that that's what uh, I enjoyed doing when I was young and what I do now. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I took up golf late later. Uh, I didn't grow up playing. Uh, I took it, uh, probably in my early thirties I started, but I, it's a great sport because it's you against you. Meaning, you know, it's, it, it, there's nobody trying to tackle you or throwing a 95 per hour fastball at you or guarding you, you know, so you can't score as in uh, basketball or soccer and uh it's just uh and it's a really microcosm of life uh, every round you go play <laughs> absolutely humbling humbling sport yes very humbling <laughs> um would you like to reveal your handicap uh to the public sure i'm i'm uh sitting just below nine nice well yeah you're I, I love that. We'll have to golf someday. I am not a nine. I'm a little, I'm probably a, a, or over double that, but I'm fun to play with. Uh, <laughs> so folks, um, he's trying, he's trying to get strokes from me already. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So what, I mean, was your aspiration to be a professional soccer player or a golfer growing up or, you know, when you, uh, as a kid, what was it like when I'm, when I'm an adult, I want to be this, what was this for you? You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I think pretty early on, I knew I was not going to be uh, the the starter on on uh, you know many sports teams. Um, 
you know, I'm not going to be the center at a basketball team and I'm not going to be uh, the quarterback in a football team. Um, so my aspirations were really more towards business. And uh, frankly, early on and probably um, once you once I started thinking about it, something beyond, you know, being a, a, a rock star or a, or, a, or whatever is uh, is law. I really was fascinated by uh, the legal profession. And, and so for a long time, that was an aspiration. And then probably in college is when I started to shift and say, I, I really want to be more uh, focused on, on business um, and see a pathway that way, as opposed to, to the legal profession. So um, you went to Florida State and got a political science major. So was that the reason you did major in political science? Because you think you were thinking law school when you entered uh, FSU? No, that's exactly right, Jeff. I was I was uh, thinking that way at the time. And there was just a, a lot of interest in what was going on in, in politics and government and uh, policy. I, I just had an interest in that stuff. I still do. I have a I'm probably a, a policy nerd now, more around uh, disability policy and disability advocacy. So it's become a what my business uh, experience is. And but yeah, I, I had a real interest in it, and it was very fascinating, and it remains fascinating today. Was there a particular person, politician, president, senator that, as a growing up, that you thought, "Oh, wow," that made you be interested in uh, being in politics and, and law? You know, I, I'm going to forget his name on this podcast. You caught me on that question, but I remember being on a call with the U.S. congressman in Pensacola uh, when I was in high school, just to to understand what uh, he did and and what policy was, it was it was a really fun uh, opportunity to have a conversation with with a sitting congressman um, as a kid, just you know asking him questions that were probably to him pretty pretty mundane, but but were fascinating to me. And then I had a real similar conversation with at that time one of the Levin brothers in Pensacola, and they were they were the legal minds in Pensacola. And so to have a conversation with them about what's going on in, in law and in policy was just fascinating uh, for a kid. Um, so it did it did drive me in, in a certain direction. And for a long time, that was where I was headed was law. So it's interesting. I And you, you graduate with your undergraduate in political science and you immediately get your MBA at, at, at FSU also. Um... And that's kind of rare among uh, amongst the guests. I've probably interviewed you know about fifty five to sixty guests so far on the podcast. What was the kind of the thinking behind that? So there's a little joke that I've heard a few times that I've repeated, uh, and, and it's that uh, you you get your political science degree, which uh, leaves you uh, with all the skills to ask somebody if they'd like more fries with their order. Um, <laughs> and so I knew I needed to I knew I needed to to get more well rounded. Um, and have uh, more knowledge around the, the business world under my belt. And so that FSU at that time had a fledgling part-time MBA program. So I could work during the day and I could go to school at night. So, um, so I did. And I remember sitting in a room with about 50 um, students that, that had all signed up for this class. And I had 
foresters, doctors, lawyers, some, you're exactly right, professionals that had come back to school after they'd worked for a decade. So I had this really uh, tremendous class of uh, students that I learned a tremendous amount from. But I also learned uh, right off the bat, part-time program, that it was going to be uh, a long-distance run, not a sprint. And so um, more than half the class had to depart at one point in time or another and didn't make it all the way through. So I was very proud of the fact that I stuck it out um, during years when you know that were very lean because it still it was still early in in jobs and uh, and then trying to study at night and on the weekends that was quite an experience. Yeah, I, I took a similar path. I right, I graduated in May, and then the next January, I did night school MBA, and I I just it took me three years, but the, I I did it. So right, it's well, something. Think, but it, yeah. but what the experience is tremendous. How you you meet people from all walks of life that have all these different experiences, and I just found it very enriching than a daytime full time program. Uh, which I, I thought might not have had the same type of student composition. So I thought it was terribly enriching. So what was your first job at a college, at an undergraduate, and how did you get it? Yeah, so I uh, I worked for the Board of Bar Examiners as an, as a, um, as an investigator, frankly, uh, for the Florida Board of Bar Examiners. So I would get the applications from... Uh, from applicants who wanted to to become lawyers in the state of Florida, and that was uh, uh, not my most exciting job, and and not one I really uh, relished because you were essentially trained to um, to distrust everything that was uh, presented to you, and that really wasn't my uh, mindset. I just I I think maybe I'm particularly at that time and perhaps a little bit more seasoned now, but I was probably a bit too optimistic for that type of a job. And then you had, you know, the typical types of sales jobs that I had uh, that were really just getting me through. My first professional job in this field was at Respect of Florida, and that was just at the end of the MBA. You know, what was your job search like? How did you get, uh, you know, hired there? Yeah, so uh, it was very fascinating. It, you know, in, in Tallahassee, my my wife was finishing up school, so I wanted to stay in town, and I, I wanted to do something that really used my MBA and, you know, your college town and a government town. The opportunities were somewhat modest. Uh, the MBA program, as I said, was fledgling, and so they had not really extended their reach to really be a known organization for for MBA graduates. And so it was really uh, a business development opportunity with a nonprofit that captured my attention. And the executive director wanted someone with some business acumen. Here I come in, hotshot, smart aleck, don't know anything. But he wanted somebody with, we'll just say, uh, the business mindset to bring to the enterprise. And the enterprise was incredibly unique. It was a middleman between government organizations, state, city, county, and nonprofits that employed people with disabilities. And we were the entity that would go and find those contracts, those, those opportunities, and secure them 
for the nonprofit agencies that were employing people with disabilities. It was a tremendous um, uh, opportunity to work and do what I had been taught in school to do um, and be able to have an impact on people. And I remember early on, it was probably the first uh, first six or eight months that I was on the job that um, I was getting a new uh, contract for a small nonprofit in, uh, you know, in little nothing Florida uh, between Orlando and, and Tampa. Um, and they had a schoolhouse and they were employing people with developmental disabilities. We got them two small contracts and within two years, they have a contract with Publix. They're re renovating the schoolhouse. They have more people that are employed and they're coming up to me and giving me hugs. It was just, it was very cathartic to be able to do a job like that and know that you're making an impact in people's lives. We'll talk about your whole career, but I mean, you've been involved with people with disabilities. Was that, was that a conscious choice? I mean, you know, like, I think you've only had like three kind of main jobs, which is rare also. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, you know, I didn't have disability in my family. And I'll tell you, I uh, you go back to, you know, why, what what attracts you to the nonprofit space versus the for-profit space or, or government, or whatever. And, and even when I was thinking about law, I was thinking about helping people. Uh, how could I help people? So what made me uh, gravitate to the idea of service I think really was rooted in uh, where I came from. I was born in Vienna, Austria. I was adopted when I was three years old. I uh, lived in the Philippines. I lived in Africa. Uh, we traveled around a lot. So I saw real poverty. I saw what the benefits of uh, being an American and all the bounty that we have. And I was very grateful and I felt that way throughout my life. We are very blessed as a nation and as a people. And so I felt a sense of uh, need to contribute back and to demonstrate my my gratitude uh, to my fellow man in some way. I didn't know what that was, but I knew I needed to do something that was going to feed the soul as as well as, uh, you know, pay, feed my family. And so uh Nonprofit work really was something that that I gravitated towards because it it fulfilled that uh, that in me. Yeah, no, that's that's phenomenal, and I, I can't wait to talk about the rest of your career. But um, yeah, so what you you had a, a seven year run at Respect uh, of Florida there. What kind of especially early on, Reinhard? What was your biggest learning? You know, coming out of basically you know, school, uh, you know, both undergraduate and your MBA, kind of what was the kind of the big learning for you early on in your career there? Well, you know, it, there were a lot of things. I mean, first off was uh, when you're young, you're probably brash and 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 impatient. I certainly was. I certainly probably, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I imagine that my mouth was the enemy of my neck a few times. Um, but, you know, what I, what I found uh, in that really was was success for me was being rooted in data, rooted in in uh, facts. You can have lots of opinions, and statistics can can be you know manipulated, but facts is really where I tended to have success. 
and I operate from data and I've, I've used data throughout my career to help uh, reinforce points, to be able to move agendas, be able to move policy. And I remember early on, there was an agency in Florida that was struggling with fulfilling contracts timely. It was supplying products uh, to the state of Florida. Customers were unhappy. Uh, we were getting a lot of feedback. And, and so here's this brash young man going down to meet with the leadership of this nonprofit to tell them that they got to get their act together. And um, and I, I found myself uh, just using data to help because it was they weren't going to listen to me. You know, I'm younger than anybody else in the room, but I could command uh, respect by just having facts and then being able to give them practical advice that could help them solve their problem. It had to do with inventory management, had to do with uh, supply chain, things that today are probably the back of my hand, but at the time were, were new ideas to be able to implement and be able to make an impact. And we did. And we grew jobs, we grew sales, and we calmed a community of customers that were uh, getting to a point where they were threatening to revolt. Wow. So was that, uh, you know, were you good at math growing up or was that a result of the MBA program or was it, what other things did you rely on to kind of have that data uh, based mindset, I guess? Yeah, I was pretty good at math. Math's always been a uh, easier uh, side of, of the game for me. Um, so that that's easy. I I will tell you, I kind of have a tendency to see numbers and, and remember them and, and um, See easier sometimes than remembering names, uh, but but I but I see numbers very clearly, so that helped. And then, you know, frankly, just the uh, if you will, just say the the rigors of what you learn in the MBA program help me to be able to look at the problem through the lens of a customer and through the lens of a, a financial model that would make sense uh, that could help the agency overcome some of its challenges. And that's what we did. So you scored high on the quantitative section of the GMAT, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I did pretty good there. I did, did pretty well in the ACT. That was, that was, that was all right. So, mm -hmm. but so, so what was good for me was having that um, I was able to make an impact and we, we were fortunate. I mean, during the time that I was at respect, we grew sales, I think 50%. Uh, we grew jobs uh, throughout the, throughout the state. We, uh, saw wages rise. We saw employment numbers rise. Um, it was a it was a fun time uh, for a long time there. And I was given an opportunity to to go from being just this business development guy to to being the director of the program, and that was uh, it was exciting. It was probably um, bestowed on me uh, a little earlier than I was fully prepared for it, and. Uh, you know, again, I, I I was very green behind the ears and made a lot of mistakes. I'm quite certain uh, if, if you call a few people, they'll tell you all of them. <laughs> it's not a mistake, Reinhardt, unless you do it twice. So th there you go. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. So you had a great run there at Respect, uh, you know, at least one or a couple of promotions, it sounds like. But then you leave and go to Winston-Salem. Talk about that transition and why did you leave Respect? There were two things that were kind of driving forces for me to want to move. One was um, I was appointed by the governor's uh, commission to be the, the director of the program and, and did that for 
about four, four and a half years. Um, and I liked it, but um, I did get more wrapped up in public policy and more around policy debates than doing what I really enjoyed doing, which was growing business, growing work, uh, and seeing the fruits of that labor. And so it became more challenging and less enriching for me personally, less rewarding. And so, and I wasn't close to the action. I wasn't close to people. I am a social animal. I like to be close to people and see uh, what we're doing and, and making an impact there. And so I wanted to work for an agency, a nonprofit organization that employed people directly as opposed to being a middleman. And so I looked for that. And Winston-Salem, uh, the, the president and CEO, was a really dynamic guy, Dan uh, Boucher, um, had come from National Industries for the Blind, took over the agency about three or four years before, uh, was trying to build a team that was going to help them grow, and uh, uh, came calling. And uh, I, I moved to Winston-Salem and was there for five years. And we really had some very interesting times there. I joined there in May of 01 and just off to the races. It was, it was a lot of fun working there. And I learned such a lot um, uh, from, I, I learned a tremendous amount from Dan and in the business and with the people that I, I worked around, there were colleagues. It was uh, fascinating. Uh, it, it was a second MBA. Wow. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, yeah, you had great success there. And then uh, I'm going to say you took the jump because you were offered the CEO of Alpha Point. Is that uh, the the reason you moved from Winston-Salem to Kansas City in 06? Or what was the kind of progression? I was actually hired by the CEO of Alpha Point. He knew he had a short window and uh, wanted to find uh, his successor. And so uh, came calling. I mean, this is this community that I'm a part of. This business uh, community is a is a fraternity, and you have some success in it. Uh, you're going to get noticed, um, and and people are going to come calling and talking to you about where there's an opportunity. And so that's that's we met at a networking event. Uh, spent the day. Frankly, it was on a golf course. Uh, spent the day golfing and laughing and uh, saw that there was a lot of uh, uh, commonality between the two of us. We're, we're friends 18 years later. Um, and so uh, I I was called to come here to help Alpha Point grow the business. Um, they were struggling financially. They were having trouble with their bank. They were having trouble with, uh, um, you know, with with trying to do any get, getting out of a rut that they were in um, with business development and sales growth, um, and in uh, frankly the financial performance of the organization. And so um, I came in to help um, make that better. And we we were fortunate we had some things go our way. Yeah. So it's a it's a phenomenal history, Alpha Point. Why don't you? tell the audience a little bit about the you know the purpose the mission the history sure jeff so so alpha point was founded in 1911 and let me go through each month of the the next uh no i'm kidding um <laughs> it so it was founded by uh, you know the, the story that i came to alpha point with was that it it was founded by a, a, a woman who had a brother who was blind um they came from nebraska and she she wanted to make it successful and that 
that is true. Um, there's a backstory that there was a blind man who lived in Kansas City, he lived in Rosedale, and he created this movement. Um, uh, he ends up being the first uh, uh, a law student at what is now the UMKC School of Law, becomes the first blind lawyer in the state of Missouri, first blind lawyer in the state of Kansas, and the first blind, blind lawyer in the state of Colorado before he passes away. So he creates this movement. And what came of that was this organization that was organized to do two things, to help people who are blind navigate the challenges of life and live independently. Early on, that was a home for blind women who uh, might've been widows, uh, but they needed to be sustained in the community and to create work jobs for people who are blind, blind men early on. So they opened up a workshop, uh, had eight blind uh, manufacturers of, of brooms and cane chairs. They had a blind supervisor, Edgar Schaefer, and they were off the races. In 1938, 20 years later, the organization is, is doing okay and surviving, but 1938, uh, the, the federal law is passed that creates this uh, set-aside program for government to buy goods made by people who are blind, and Alpha Point gets involved with that. During the war, Alpha Point is recognized and uh, rewarded uh, as one of the suppliers to the U.S. military. We have been a supplier to the U.S. military ever since. All of that has uh, turned into an organization that is close to 400 people, provides services to over 4,000 people a year who have lost their vision or experiencing some sort of significant vision loss to help them maintain themselves in the community, get back to work, or maintain their independence in their own home and age with dignity. And, um, and we're very proud of the work that we do uh, in the communities that we serve and for the people that we employ, uh, who are many of them have not had a job before or haven't had a job in a long time because the unemployment rate for people who are blind is about 70% nationally. And so our job is to help people find a pathway to work, economic independence, and the ability to provide for themselves and for their families. Yeah, no, it's a it's a phenomenal story. And another member of your peer advisory group, uh, Jai Mays, was, has been a guest on the podcast. And her dad was part of it wasn't called Alpha Point when he went through it, I think, but it was, I mean, same organization, which is, you know, just incredible. Um, uh, and we'll get back to the kind of, you know, helping people, all the people you're helping, but like, what was the big uh, surprise for you coming to Alpha Point? Now you're running a company for the first time with, you know, kind of what was your, you know, initial like, oh my God, I didn't know about this or did you have one of those moments or a couple of those moments oh gosh there probably so many of those moments i probably couldn't uh couldn't hit to any one i will say this that the community for an organization to be as old as it was it was not known it was a secret in town and that was a surprise to me so few people knew who it was what it did why it needed help we had a, a board that were lovely people, but they were struggling to get uh, the organization to be 
better known and, and better visible. And I, I remember sitting in a meeting after I was hired as the CEO and I said, okay, I'm going to take the organization public. And, uh, and, and the board chair is thinking, well, who is this schmuck that thinks that we're going to sell stock or something? Um, but what I was really talking about was I, I wanted to increase the visibility and ultimately the esteem in the community of the organization to bring people to it. To me, a nonprofit has to have two things to be, first off, it's a nonprofit by virtue of its IRS designation, not as a business strategy. So uh, the organization has to make money. I don't care if you're a church, school, hospital, whatever. If you don't have money, you can't deliver a mission. And then the second thing is it has to be relevant to the community that it serves. If it, and, and that really was the second issue that we had and where we were struggling. People didn't know about us. Did they care what happened if the organization just ceased to exist? Would anybody remember or give a darn? And I wanted people to care. And that's where we put a lot of effort and emphasis in order to, to increase the uh, visibility, engagement, and esteem of the organization and the brand. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about, like, I had a brief experience with a, a, a global not-for-profit. I was in the local chapter here. Um, but the model for Alpha Point is a lot different than other not-for-profits in terms of how they receive money. Talk a little bit about that, Reinhardt. Yeah. So uh, what's what's happened throughout the course of the agency's history is it 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 raised money, but it wasn't dependent solely upon fundraising dollars in order to sustain itself. And almost every foundation in the city and throughout the country, whenever it's giving money to a nonprofit, asks the nonprofit, how are you going to make this gift and stop coming back to me every year for more? How are you going to make this program sustainable? If you don't have my money, is it still going to exist or is this a one-off? And so Alpha Point's business model has been the creation of business to create jobs and fulfill its mission such that it is sustainable whether or not it has huge receipts in fundraising. It will still be able to sustain itself and deliver services and employment to the community. So most of our effort is around the fulfillment of contracts that we have with the state, with the feds, with private customers. But everything that we do is a mission-based activity. It's all under the same umbrella of creating jobs and delivering services to people who are blind. It just happens to be that I generate revenue, I generate margin, and if there's no margin, there's no mission. So my job is to generate a margin in order to create sustainable jobs and to, to fulfill uh, the services that we want to to the community. Yeah, and again, I, you know, just based on my limited experience working for a not-for-profit and sitting on the board of a, a startup not-for-profit, I mean, I think part of it is, I mean, you did you learn to basically run that not-for-profit like a, a say regular business i know it, you're it's the same right you need money if you're a church any other not-for-profit but i mean you seem to have a more a, a you know traditional i'll say you know for-profit business mentality did that just was part of your mba background and your previous jobs talk about that a little bit 
Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, you know, when when I came to Alpha Point before I accepted the job, I asked for a copy of the financials, and I, I don't know that everybody does that. I I would tell any of your listener if you're listeners that's thinking about taking over an organization or or going to be in a position in which you're in the leadership team is uh, I, I want to see your financials and understand what it is I need to do and can I make an impact? And I I knew, you know, within five minutes of looking at the financial statements where I could be helpful and where I could make an impact at Alpha Point fairly quickly. It was, it was apparent. Um, and that's maybe been my gift of, of, of combination of of the MBA and the experience I had at Winston-Salem, is um, I understood that. I understood w- what was possible and practical. The other part of it is, you know, candidly is uh, good leaders, hopefully good leaders, um, meet people and build a network. And I was fortunate to be able to do that. And I brought that network to bear in Kansas City. I brought people in from 3M Corporation, from Kensington, Echo Brands, from you know, from a lot of different companies. And and I got them to recognize that this is an organization that had great bones, but needed uh, something to help get it uh, going to frankly light the fire, uh, the afterburner, if you will. And that's what we did. The three projects that we brought in within the first year were, uh, was a project that we did uh, with Kensington, a division of ACO Brands or subsidiary of ACO Brands was a project with 3M Corporation. And and then we had a, a product that we'd come up with internally that we launched and uh, took it to uh, the military at AUSA and a few others. And and they were excited about it and off the races. You know, you've, you've been helping people with disabilities your entire career, uh, you know, obviously before coming to Alpha Point. Um, and a lot of, I think, mainly blind people, or, or many of them blind. Uh, so you're kind of in that space of helping blind people, but now you're leading, you know, uh, 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 your team members who are blind. Now, uh, besides the obvious that they can't see, what what were kind of the leadership challenges for you in that, or what you know the differences, I guess, in, in terms of someone with sight versus someone blind. Sure. So, so I'll, I'll tell you first off for your listeners is uh, a person, you know, people are blind or like anybody else. There's hardworking ones, there's lazy ones, there's really intelligent, bright ones. There's ones that, that struggle a little bit with, uh, with stuff like that. Um, that's the first thing you have to break through is you recognize that they're just people. We're all just people. We all put our pants on the same way. We all have to go to work and, and do things and provide for ourselves and for our families. And I think that, that um, for some people, who have not been around disability, that is a barrier. And the barrier is they're in their own mind because people who are sighted, they look at a blind person and they project upon that blind person all of their own insecurities, all of their own feelings of doubt. If I lost my eyesight, I could never do these things. Just name it. And if you've lost your eyesight, like tomorrow, you're going to think about Everything that you did to get up this morning, to get dressed, to, you know, make breakfast for yourself, to get your kids off to school, to get to work, all of those things become super daunting. Well, that's that's the first barrier that I think that most people who are sighted have, a person who's blind or a person who has no disability sees and projects upon a person with a disability. So we needed to overcome that because I'm not blind. I've got people who are, who are looking at me as a leader 
and they're saying, you don't know me. You, you haven't walked a day in my shoes. You don't know what I experienced. So what I needed to do was let them know I hear them. And so I spent a lot of time listening. I was told very early on by, by mentors, hey, you need to be visible. And I don't mean visible by, you know, to somebody who's blind, but you need to be there. They need to know you. You need to be accessible and you need to give a darn. You need to demonstrate that you care. So throughout my, my years here, I've been work, working here for 18 years, every day in the building, when I'm in the building, I walk around and I talk to people. I make sure that I am not this mystery Oz guy behind the curtain in the office and, oh, I only go to see him if, if I've done something wrong or, or whatever. I wanted to be the guy that everybody knows who I am. And so that's a big part of how I operate. Some people call it management by walking around. I walk around to be well uh, connected and so that people take the mystery out of who's this guy with this weird name. Yeah, um, I think that was probably one of the most important things that uh, that I learned. And, and I also learned and I think it's absolutely critical to be authentic, also to understand that your integrity, your honesty is your currency. So my dad taught me that and I've applied it throughout my life and throughout my career. I do what I say and I say what I do. And I had small wins early that demonstrated that. I do what I say, and I say what I do, and I follow through. And those things matter if you are a line worker or if you are a, you know, a master's degree professional. That mattered to me, and it mattered to them, and it built a relationship and helped to, helped to make a very healthy culture, culture here at Alpha Point. You said it earlier. Everything you just said is great leadership advice for any CEO, president, any leader in any job, whether they have disabilities or don't have disabilities, you know, and they should change it. It was MBWA managed by walking around. It should be LBWA leading by walking around, right? So you you lead people, you manage process. I, I learned that a long time ago, but anyhow. I like uh, that. <laughs> so, um, so tell, I, I, I think you have some you know, core business, I'll call them units. Explain those a little bit uh, What Alpha Point, at Alpha Point. Yeah, great question. So, so um, we have a large injection molding operation here in Kansas City where we supply bottles, uh, prescription bottles to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, they operate a mail order pharmacy business throughout the country for veterans. Uh, your listeners probably don't know that unless they are veterans. Um, but they get their, their medicine from these mail-order pharmacy locations that are uh, throughout the country. We supply all of the bottles for the VA and the caps for that mail-order distribution of, of prescription medicine. We've been doing that for 25 years, and we're very proud of that business. That has been expanded now, where we also supply prescription bottles to Express Scripts, primarily for their contract delivering to active duty military and their dependents. So we're not only serving veterans, but we're serving active duty and their families with the prescription bottles and caps that we produce. Uh, we also supply a few other things in, in that umbrella. So that's one is injection molding, uh, the plastics business. 
Uh, we are a uh, assembler of office products. So we've been making writing instruments since 1969. And those have evolved over time. We used to make just stick pens. Now we make a whole, a whole fleet, if you will, of tactical pens. You think, what's a tactical pen? What could that be? Well, when you think about a soldier who's on the battlefields or the front lines, they certainly don't want a pen that reflects light. So ours is a is essentially a, uh, a, a metal pen uh, that is black or uh, green, but it's, it's in a matte finish. It's not going to reflect light. Uh, it is metal so that it, it's uh, sturdy. And it also is, uh, can be used in the cockpit of an airplane because it has uh, been uh, designed so that there's no foreign object debris that ends up in the cockpit and gumming up the works. That's the other aspect of our business in Kansas City. In New York, we took over uh, an agency in 2014, sewn goods. So we sew military uniforms. We sew what we call a litter strap. We developed our own patented tourniquet. So we manufacture and supply tourniquets. They've been sold in the military. We sold about 800,000 of them uh, since they were developed, uh, but uh, they've been shipped to Ukraine and they're uh, uh, used by our soldiers, sailors and airmen today. And then we operate uh, base stores on military installations at Fort Leonard Wood and at Little Rock Air Force Base. So we have a, a pretty uh, diverse business line. We also operate call center uh, that employs people who are blind. I have employees in 13 states who are who are doing that work remotely. So it's a diverse business that creates jobs for people who are blind at different levels and skill levels, from those with limited skills and experience to those who have tremendous uh, technology knowledge and can do uh, website optimization and evaluate whether or not they are uh, uh, accessible. Uh, for other people who are blind and do contract management, contract closeout. It's a, a spectrum of job opportunities for people who are blind through these various enterprises. And then we operate a rehabilitation and clinical service, which creates both a, a training curricula for a person who's lost their vision or is experiencing a dramatic change in their vision or who needs uh, advice, occupational therapy, in order to uh, maintain their function uh, in the community, whether it be in their home or their place of business so they're able to maintain their job. It's a big uh, part of what we do. And like I said, we serve 4,000 people a year who need those services from youth as young as two years old to end of life. Wow. Uh, yeah, I just, I'm so impressed with the kind of diversity you have, which is phenomenal. And I always, having ran inside sales channels and actually been on the phone selling, I always say selling is hard, but selling on the phone is really hard, but it's such an advantage really. And I think you've talked about it before. I've heard you talk about it before, but you know, if when you're blind, it's a lot about the list, your listening skills are so phenomenal and selling on the phone is all about listening. So it, yep. you really have an advantage. It's just, oh yeah. You know, it's almost like a gold mine. Of, uh, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I tell people we have the best listeners in the business. And, uh, and I, and I mean that as a, in a bit of a, of a joke, but you know, it, it's funny. People are sighted. They think about a blind person. They all, they all think about daredevil. 
right? The, the superhero, right? The blind superhero. Because uh, they think that everybody who, who is blind suddenly has uh, super hearing. Well, they don't. They just, you know, 70% of our inputs come through sight. And so if you don't have sight, you're using the rest of your senses and spending more time attuned to them. If you closed your eyes, just sitting out on your porch or just sitting in your office, you would hear the hum of your air conditioner. You'd You'd hear an insect that's flying around. You'd hear people that are walking in the hallway or people that are that are walking uh, uh, on a sidewalk. All of those things would suddenly become more real and clearer for you. So if you're a person who's blind and you're working a call center job, you have a set of headphones on. And in one headphone ear, you're hearing the customer, the person that you're talking to on the phone. And in your other you're hearing what's going on in the computer screen so that you're able to navigate that computer and get to the right field to be able to enter data or to be able to answer the question the person that's calling you is asking. That is the power of our brain. It's tremendous power that we have locked up in our brain. And frankly, the person on the phone, if the person who's doing the job working for me is doing it well, the person on the phone has no idea they're talking to somebody blind. It, it makes no difference. They get the same great experience that they would if it was a sighted person or a blind person. No difference. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, so like many, uh, well, like every CEO that you know was leading a company during the pandemic, uh, you had your challenges. But outside of the, what kind of a, you know, a, a regular CEO with that's not running a team with uh, disabilities. What were your unique challenges uh, with AlphaPoint? Yeah, boy, I tell you what, this, it's really fascinating uh, when you think about think about think about some of the, the the first most basic thing that everybody was told to do: be six feet apart, right? So, if you're a blind person and you need to be guided through a space that you're not familiar with, the, the practice is to put your hand on the arm of the person that's guiding you so that you can navigate that space. It's called sighted guide in, in my parlance. Um, well, you weren't supposed to do that. If you're working in a production space and you're blind and it is a, an assembly uh, space, it's not equipment, you're moving things along and you're touching and you're moving very close together. You're creating almost a dance. Well, if you can't be close together, that becomes really hard and people who are blind can be isolated. That was a tremendous challenge for us and for our workforce. Beyond that, think about the fact that you're a blind person, anybody with a disability, anybody who can't drive is using public transportation. Well, in New York, public transportation was dropped. The, the traffic was dropped by, I don't know, 40%. And all the people that were driving the buses said, we have a limit on the number of people that can be in any car, whether it be on, on the subway or the bus. Same way here in Kansas City. They limited the number of people that were on, so they were spread out. So people would be sitting at a bus stop for you know three, four, five buses waiting to be able to get on. It was a tremendous challenge for our workforce. But I will tell you and say this to all your listeners, anyone who's thinking about hiring somebody, think about a person with a disability, think about a person who's blind. 
my workforce, my blind workforce, never missed a day. Never missed a day. They came to work every day. They were excited to do it. They were proud to do it. We gave them all t-shirts that said, uh, you're essential, sight isn't, but you are. And they were proud to do it. They wore it as a badge of honor that they were called essential. I had somebody say to me, you know, I've never been called essential in my life. <laughs> so I am now. Um, so our folks loved that. They were proud of it. They came to work every day and I'm, I'm so proud of them. And what we did was gave them comfort because we have people that are that are medically involved and, and are, are medically fragile. We had to give them comfort that when they came into our building, they were in a space that cared about them and was going to make sure that it was a clean and a, a good working environment. And we thus limited spread. We didn't have anybody who passed away as a result of the virus I'm, I'm, as, who was working for us. I'm very grateful and lucky, uh, but we were grateful that we were able to do that. I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of our workforce in that regard. Wow. That's a, that's, uh, that's a great story. Reiner, thank you for that, sharing that. Um, so uh, uh, Alpha Point, around 112 years, kind of what, uh, what would be like uh, 10 years from now, where do you want it to be? What, what do you see? Well, Jeff, I'll tell you this. We are in the midst of a capital improvement uh, program here. So we, have, uh, we plan on uh, building an extension to this building in Kansas City, our headquarters. Uh, we're going to add approximately 20,000 square feet of manufacturing and warehouse space here. We also uh, acquired a subsidiary uh, organization called Rightfully Sown that employs uh, largely refugees and people who are uh, vulnerable and, and having barriers to employment. And we see that organization continuing to grow. We bought uh, space, uh, a, a building in Marlboro neighborhood in order to uh, uh, give them a permanent home in time. We want to see the Marlboro neighborhood revitalized and become vibrant. I, I would love to see 10 years from now a vibrant community in which there are uh, amenities for the neighborhood, uh, whether it be uh, grocery or pharmacy, uh, child care. Uh, you know, the pandemic was a, a real impact on the child care community. I think we lost something like between four and 5,000 beds across the city uh, because of uh, the pandemic. Uh, and New York had some similar challenges in that regard. So I really wanna see uh, us be a catalyst for improving the neighborhood. And then I want us to continue to grow and serve and employ more people who are blind. We have a three-year strategic plan that includes the continued development of innovative products, adding to our family of patented tactical medical devices so that we can help the warfighter uh, survive a catastrophic injury and return home to their family. That's where we have invested our time and our money. And we think that if we do that, uh, more soldiers, sailors, and airmen are, airmen are going to come home uh, to, their, to their family members and, and continue their lives. So that's what we're doing. And I can tell you that my blind workforce is excited to be a part of that and to feel that they're able to contribute in some way towards their nation and give back as well as uh, have a job and, and a career. Well, I, 
I'm uh, betting with you and not against you because you're a determined person. You've done great things. And uh, I know you've grown Alpha Point uh, tremendously in your 18 years there. So thank you for all you do for uh, the blind community. That's just uh, tremendous. Thank um, you. Uh, Reinhardt, there's two groups I love to help with uh, leadership advice from great leaders like yourself. First is recent college graduate. So think back when you're you were going to graduate from FSU. What what uh, career advice would you have for them as they're embarking on their first professional job? Yeah, so uh, you know you get the the trite comment, do what you love, and 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 then it's not a job, all that sort of thing. But I'd say once you get in the job, um, I I think uh, young people. Uh, perhaps it, they've been driven by social media, or or maybe it's just just how uh, how the the world operates today. But you don't know everything. Um, the gray hair uh, that's on your leaders' heads is earned and learned. Um, so be humble, ask questions, and you'll be shocked by what you learn and what you gain from it. That probably is the number one thing that. That every young person needs to do, to do is to learn and be humble enough to ask a lot of questions. The other one is, and I, I say this to anyone who has moved any any kind of leadership role, the military teaches its officers that the enlisted people eat first. And I think there's a whole litany of truth that's wrapped up in that simple little bit of advice. Make sure your soldiers eat first and then you last. And why is that important? It shows that you care about them. It's not about you. It's about them. That's the two things I would give as advice to somebody who's who's new in a job. Well, I think you already answered the second question I usually ask because the other group I like to uh, help is after you get a job, you usually are not leading people, but then you get promoted and now you have a group of people you're responsible for. So anything you would add to that, you know, uh, your soldiers, your team members eat first, any other advice as those people begin their uh, leadership journey? Yeah, again, it, it, it's the advice that my dad gave to me, and that is uh, your, your integrity, your honesty, your word is your currency. Uh, don't give that away. Um, and so I, like I said, you start with, I do what I say and I say what I do. If you promise you're going to do something by two o'clock, by golly, two o'clock or earlier is what you want to do. And if you're going to be late and things happen, tell people in advance, don't wait until they ask, uh, Hey, where was that report? Hey, where was, when were you going to get back to us on that? Well, Tell them in advance. I just think that that is so powerful and you will lead by example by doing that. People will listen to you, they'll follow you and they'll follow your lead and, be, and do the same thing. Yeah, that's a great advice. Ronard, again, thank you for everything you're doing for not only the Kansas City community, but uh, for the uh, people that are blind all across the country. You've been a great guest. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it very much. I ask your listeners to uh, go on our website and see if uh, there's ways that you might be uh, able to help us. Uh, you know, it could be volunteering. It could be uh, introduce, introducing us to a potential customer. Uh, 
for what we do and certainly helping us with uh, with dollars for the capital campaign uh, because we do want to expand if we want to deliver more services. So please look up uh, information about us on our, on our website, alphapoint.org. Thank you again. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it's so great to talk to Reinhard uh, Mabry. I, I found out about him, as I mentioned in the podcast, on uh, Randy Powell's Lessons in Leadership uh, podcast. And here's one of the, I'm going to say, that one of the best leader CEOs in Kansas City, but I don't think he's well known outside yeah. the not-for-profit world in my mind. But, you know, again, I'm not a, I'm a N of one in this uh, sample size, but uh, I just loved his leadership, the leading by walking around. And I've heard people tell me, like, he knows every name of the 400 employees. He knows their families' names and what they enjoy doing. Like, he's a true leader. And when he says, you know, uh, your, your word and integrity is your currency, you know, he leads by that. I love that you know. quote. It's, yeah, it's so good. And just the diversity of Alpha Point, 112 year old, give or take organization. They're in manufacturing, call center, um, tactical writing pens, <laughs> you know, writing instruments, medical devices, uh, rehab and clinical service, e commerce. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And the business model for not for profit, he's 180 degrees from the other 99% of the not-for-profits in the U.S. because his business model is making money from products and services and creating margin that gives them the profit that what, they can use. What a, what a concept. He wants to make money. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, just, that's great. God, he, he's just a, such an authentic uh, leader and person. I just so enjoyed talking to him and uh, will do anything I can to promote um, Alpha Point. Uh, but Joe, what did you take out of it? The one thing that, that struck me uh, that I was thinking about, he didn't talk about it very specifically, but I, I kind of wanted to bring it up anyway. If you're going to be a person with a disability, the best place to be that person is in the United States. And the reason for that is because the United States knows how to take care of people and, and how, to, how to assimilate them into the culture they um the the united states culture the what they do better than about anything else is take care of people that can't take care of themselves so uh it's may not be a perfect system but it's the best system in the in the world for that and it's people like reinhardt and uh, organizations like alpha point that are the reason for that so you know if anybody out there is listening and has a, a corporation that needs, I don't know, in, injection molding plastic parts or tactical weapons or call centers or something like that, um, look into that and see if that's something that he can do for you because this needs to be supported. This, this needs to be shouted from the rooftops that and, he's taking care of people Joe, who can't take care of themselves. Hmm. Yeah, and Joe, let's clarify. It's tactical pens, not weapons, just so we can... Did I say record. tactical weapons? <laughs> <It's t> <laughs> Joe, what leadership advice do you have for our great listeners today? 
Well, today we're going to go back to one of our favorites, that uh, great philosopher named Stephen Wright. And uh, he's the one that said one time, or reminded us that one time, that half the people that you know are below average. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.